how this goes. <laughs> um, hopefully you told me I didn't look too good today, that's true. Um, just a strep throat, something like that, I don't know. But our text, um, our text today is from Matthew 3, and so I'm going to go ahead and read, wait, Matthew 2, thank you, 13 to 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. For this was to fulfill what God had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, a weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Lord God, you have given us the gift of your word, the gift of being able to share it. Um, today, Lord God, I pray that you would uh, take whatever uh, weak... <laughs> broken vessels that I have to offer here um, and use them, Lord, to, um, to make your truth known. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's the early part of the year. And we like to resolve things. Um, we like to resolve that we'll be different, that we'll act different, that we'll eat different. Um, we're still writing our... Anybody write the wrong date on a check yet? Are we excited or something? Yeah, we still haven't really fully transitioned over into being um, into 2020 mentally. These resolutions that we make are are often um, promises that we make to ourselves that we're going to be changed, we're going to be new. In the Bible, there's a similar kind of promise gets, that gets made. Um, we see people engaging in Scripture in something called covenant making. God starts the whole process. If you remember, he creates the world in six days, and he seals it, he confirms it, he places over that the Sabbath day, the seventh day. That this is a day on which you should rest, in which your life should be given over to me, right? that we lay aside all striving for our own well-being. After the wickedness of humanity, meets its end in the flood in Genesis 6, makes, God makes a covenant with Noah that he will deliver a sinful world from such destruction in the future. He hangs a rainbow in the sky as if to say, I will not pick up my bow to shoot it against humanity anymore. 
I'm putting down my weapons. Not long after that, humanity has lost its common blessing. They've lost their common worship, their common place, their common purpose, even their common language in the Tower of Babel. And God makes a covenant with Abraham that he will establish him as a people who will one day restore these things to all the nations. It's the covenant of circumcision in Genesis 12. We're only like 12 chapters in, and there's already three covenants. And it continues throughout. Um, these covenants get walked out in the life of Israel. It's clearly there at Mount Sinai after Egypt come, or Israel comes up out of Egypt and is at the foot of the mountain. And God says, you remember if you read it in Exodus, God actually thunders to them and he speaks the Ten Commandments to them. Okay? Don't believe your Charlton Heston movies. <laughs> he doesn't bring down these tablets and say, look, here are these ten rules God gave you. No, God actually speaks those Ten Commandments to them and then the people all say, yes, we agree, we'll follow that. He makes another covenant with them. Again, God makes a promise with David that his family will be on the throne of Israel. And it's these covenants that the prophets are constantly pointing back to. They're saying, God, remember what you said you would do, right? Remember that you said you would not destroy us. Remember that you said we would not, you would not break a bruised reed. Remember that you said you were going to be ours and we were going to be yours. And if we die, it's bad for us, but it's really bad for you because all of a sudden you're now the God who doesn't keep his word. So the, the prophets are constantly preaching this kind of way. But more often they're reminding Israel of the goodness of a God who didn't have to promise what he did, who didn't have to make a covenant with Noah or the Adam, who didn't have to create us at all, who didn't have to pluck Abraham up out of his city and make him the chosen people of God. The fact that we're here is totally by grace. We had nothing to do with it. The prophets have to remind Israel that even, well, they remind them of a lot of things. But notice that these promises, these covenants, they change the people involved, right? There's a cut that is made in the flesh in the case of circumcision. Um, there is an act that is made between Noah and God. They reveal the character of God, but they change the people who are involved. David can trust his life in God's hand while being hunted by Saul after God plucks him out of the field and anoints him king of Israel because God's already made that covenant, that promise with him. Abraham can even surrender his only son after he becomes the father of God's chosen people. He goes onto that mountain to kill the one person that God promised, this is who I'm going to bring you offspring through. These promises make the barren bring forth babies. They cause shepherds to become kings. They take people who are nothing but lost in their sin and their inability to cope with the trials of this world and they make them more. They make them free to work for God. They transform them. Our resolutions change us, but our resolutions are dependent on us doing it, on our willpower. They don't change us from the inside out. Covenants change us. The covenant I took on March 15th, 2014. From that day forward, I will either be a husband or an ex-husband. But I'll always be a husband, right? <laughs> always. It transformed who I was to stand there 
in front of those people and who represented you, by the way, so you all can hold us to our marriage vows, and to say, I do. They changed about a year later on June 19th, 2015, when pastors laid their hands on me and they ordained me as a minister in the Church of the Nazarene. It changed me in a way that I will always live in relationship to my calling. That's what covenants do. More fundamental than any of those, marriage or ordination, is the covenant of my baptism. 92, 93, I don't know. I was five, though. I know that. A big old concrete tub in the high desert. My dad baptized me in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I've never been the same since. That act was a covenantal act that brought me into the body of Christ. And I will always live my life as somebody who is either accepting that or rejecting it. But it stands over me. Those promises change us because they bring us into a new kind of relationship with the world. Marriage changes you because you're ever after bound to intimately love and nurture one family. Ordination binds you to loving and serving and shepherding Christ's body. I've pastored two churches and, and I'm, the installation service always blows me away because it's, it's like a marriage service. There's a deep sort of exchange of vows between a congregation and a pastor that takes place at that moment. Baptism binds us to God's gracious salvation through the story of Israel and the church. That by that water we come into the body of Christ. And Jesus' own story has a special relationship to Israel. That's why I'm talking about all this. Because think about Jesus' life. Remember the big, the wide sort of scope picture of Israel's history. But just like the family of Israel, Jesus in this passage today is taken down to Egypt by someone named Joseph. Israel is taken down by Joseph, one of, I always have to, <laughs> Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one of Jacob's 12 sons. For Jesus, it was the insecure, or, sorry, both of them are hated and pursued by the local tyrant. For Jesus, it was the insecure and murderous Herod. For Israel, it's the insecure and murderous Pharaoh. But both Jesus and Moses escape this mass infanticide thanks to the miraculous intervention of God. Both Jesus and Israel come up out of Egypt and go to the land of Israel. You know, I looked this week. This passage is the only time in the New Testament when the phrase the land of Israel is mentioned. The only time. Israel as a people, yes. Israel is God, yes, all those things. But it's the only place that the New Testament refers to the land of Israel. Because Matthew is making a point that Israel comes up out of Egypt and goes to that place, that promised land that God has set aside for them. Just like Israel passing through the Red Sea and going into the wilderness for 40 years, Jesus is baptized and then goes to the wilderness to fast and pray for 40 days. He takes all of Israel's story into himself. And as he does that, he's so obedient that he goes even to the cross. Today's New Testament reading, Ephesians 1, is, is remarkable for the way that it insists on one thing, that we are in Christ. That we have been blessed in Christ, that we have been chosen in Christ, that we have been predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ, that we have redemption and forgiveness. God's will has been revealed in Christ, and in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. And so we're more than just ourselves. 
I am more than just me and those close to me. I belong to all to whom Christ belongs. Every one of us is a part of that corporate humanity. As long as we've had the breach of sin repaired through repentance and confession of Jesus Christ as Lord, we are in Christ. One of my great weaknesses, um, in addition to not knowing when to quit and getting sick too often, um, <laughs> is that I love superlatives. I love the highest and the best and the fastest and the tallest and the biggest. I used to just sit and read in, in my room, just read the Guinness Book of World Records. Like, there's no story to it, but I just sit there and, you know, okay, who has a world record for balancing the most cups on their chin? There is a record for that. Um, there's a lot of stupid records in that book. <laughs> and growing up, I was always so proud that the state of California had most of the biggest stuff in the nation. I mean, except for, like, the biggest rocking chair and, you know, the biggest ball of yarn. Those are all out in, like, Missouri. But, um, but the biggest trees, they're here in California. Um, those kinds of... so. You know, we have the oldest living thing, which is like a 5,000-year-old tree, uh, bristlecone pines. We have the tallest thing, the coastal redwoods. And I thought we had the largest tree, the General Sherman tree up in Sequoia. But I started to hear about another way that people were reckoning that. They discovered this aspen grove in Utah, south-central Utah, that is one tree, 106 acres. And every tree in that 106 acres is genetically identical. Now, our church is on just under three acres. So imagine 35 times, 36 times the size of our church property. One tree. Why talk about that? Because our perception is that we are many. We are each individual little shoots of an aspen tree coming up, and that we wave our leaves, and we shake our branches, and there's probably some children's book about how all the trees sing. But the truth is, is that every single one aspen tree there in Utah is in aspen. <laughs> it is in the one tree. It's in the whole. When we become Christians, we become part of a forest that is really becoming a part of Christ. We become a part of the body of Christ. And mysteriously, Christ is all of these things. He is Jesus of Nazareth, the man who lived for 33 years, 2,000 years ago. He's the encapsulation of the whole history of Israel, whether... It is in going down to Egypt and coming up out of Egypt and fulfilling all the covenant promises. He's also the figure who breaks open salvation for all people everywhere, enabling even those of us who are Gentiles here, which I think is most of us, to be saved by faith in Him and not by our own striving and struggling. We can now join that great forest of Israel's history so that all the individual saints, whether it's Noah and Abraham and David and Isaiah, who are the trees are also a part of the forest that we know. It's filled with people like Merlin Hunter and Phineas Brzee and John and Charles Wesley, Irenaeus and Justin and Phoebe and Prissa and Timothy and Paul. But Jesus is the hinge. Jesus is the one on whom it all turns. 
You remember the sign above Jesus' head when he was crucified? It was written in all the major languages of the world, Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. It wasn't just written in Aramaic so the Jews could read it. It wasn't just written in Greek or Latin so that everybody could know what he was accused of. Right at this crossroad of the whole world outside Jerusalem, one of the most important areas in the Roman Empire, a focal point for conflict for the Egyptians, for the Babylonians, for the Assyrians, for the Greeks, for every nation, even today, guess what? Middle East is still in the news. In that place, the proclamation is made that in language everyone can understand that here on the cross hangs the king of the Jews, the one who completes and fulfills Israel's story. So my question is, what story are you trying to live out today? You're trying to live out the story of a successful, upwardly mobile, successful family, one that has beautiful Christmases that can go on all the cards and get posted on all the Instagram feeds? Are you trying to live out the story that says that you don't really need help from those who are close to you, but you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? You do it You try hard enough, you can work at it. Some of us are trying to kick off the story that our parents gave us, that we're a sports star or an academic star, and we're never going to meet their expectations because no matter how high we jump, we can't reach that bar that they set for us. So many of us are living out the stories told to us as children that we're weak, You know, that big boys don't cry. Story that good girls don't make waves. Maybe you're living out the story that if you let people see what is really and truly hidden inside of you, you're going to be rejected. That people are going to see it as ugly and not want to be around it. Truth is, we know that's a lie. We know that God has made you good, that God desires to redeem you, and God wants to weave a new story into your life. The worst story, I think, maybe, the story of despair, is the one that says, I can never change. I can never be different. I'm stuck in my sin. I guess Jesus loves me, or he used to love me anyway before I screwed it all up, but, and yeah, he saved me, I guess I can confess that, but Jesus doesn't really want to be with me on a daily basis. But you see, that's what a covenant is. A covenant is a promise with a cost that binds the two parties together. And if you're a believing Christian, then God has made a covenant of love with you in your baptism. He has promised to bring about what is best for you, and He's even done the unthinkable. He has become a human and entered into the messy ugly story of the nation of Israel in order to make that happen. There's nowhere that God has not gone for you. He's gone into human life. He's gone into human death. He's descended even down into the dead, the place of the dead. We've got to abandon our own stories and take on instead the story that Jesus gives us. We have to leave the idea that we can never change Because when we enter into this covenant, we are given power that we did not have before that time. 
We're given possibilities in Christ and through his spirit that we did not have before that time. Now, I know that the world is vicious. I know that the world is vicious and not kind to those who reject its ways. I know that the world is still full of Herods who will murder a whole town's children to get to one threatening baby. I know that it's full of pharaohs who will willingly enslave and abuse and oppress. Some of us have known them. And it's not always clear to us how we can leave those old stories behind and come into the way of Christ. But notice how it develops. In the Exodus account, the Israelites are down in Egypt. Right? Right? Okay, good. I need a little response. <laughs> in the Exodus account, the, the, the Israelites are down in Egypt. Pharaoh is outside of them. He's not one of them. And he goes looking. In fact, he has all of these baby boys picked up and thrown into the Nile to stop the population growth of the Israelites. But one makes it through, Moses. What's the same thing in Jesus' day? Herod is there, the king of the land of Judea. Except notice something about Herod. He is a Jew. He's technically a part of the promised covenanted people of God. So what has happened is that Pharaoh has gone in that time span. He's gone from being outside of Israel to now he's inside Israel. Now he's a sheep among wolves. No, he's a wolf among sheep. <laughs> but he looks a whole lot like a sheep. Pharaoh is inside Israel. And the world is vicious because it does this to us. We see the story out there and we tremble. We see that consumerism is rampant, that sloth overwhelms us, that greed and hatred and unkindness and arrogance. Every one of us, when we were 20 years old, had the answers to all the world's problems. If only everybody would do just what we want them to do. But we grow. We discover that consumerism and sloth and greed and hatred and unkindness isn't just out there, it's in me. The Herod is inside me. But the world is in me. But I'm a Christian. I'm baptized. I'm supposed to be better than this. I'm not supposed to be angry or selfish like this. I'm, I'm not supposed to be making the same mistakes my parents made. And we discover then why Jesus didn't just come to redo Israel. He had to die. He had to be crucified. And we need to be crucified too. We need to follow Jesus as he takes all of Israel and all of the Gentiles to the cross. And he takes everyone, every story beyond its natural end. Jesus makes it possible through the cross that we can have a different story. Except this time, the cut is not made in our flesh, it's made in Jesus' flesh, on our behalf. In Jesus and the cross, all the different sides of the Jewish culture come together to do their worst to him. Pilate, Herod, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, these guys can't agree on anything except one thing, which is that Jesus needs to die. They throw everything they have at him because the worst they can deliver to him is death. But it doesn't overwhelm God. Even the worst that they can imagine, even the worst that they can muster, is not enough to overwhelm God. 
So this is where we have to do something different. We can't just make, re make resolutions. We have to enter into a covenant to say yes to God's promise, even though it has a cost. To quote a wedding sermon I recently heard, Christians are called to love one another, even if they're married. That's funny. I'm going to say that again. Okay, Christians are called to love one another, even if they're married. <laughs> and I think that holds up, right? Christians are called to love one another, even if they go to church together, even if they're a part of your Sunday school. Why do we say it like that? Because the easiest people for us to forget about are the people who are right in front of us. The easiest people, the hardest people for us to love are the ones who we see all their flaws and their difficulties and their little annoyances. But God has called us to something more, to love one another into the beauty that we wish was there, to hold a vision for the final beauty that God is working out in each one of us, and ultimately the beauty that God is working out here at Cordova Naz. May we all take responsibility for the well-being of our neighbor and our church to come to this renewed commitment to make.